Judges chapter 16. I'm going to be skipping around just a little bit. Judges chapter 16, I'm going to be reading verses 9, 12, 14, and 20. And then uh, we are going to be jumping over to Luke chapter 18, reading verses 1 through 8. Thank you, Pastor Chemist, for uh, giving me this opportunity to, to teach here this morning. Uh, Judges chapter 16, verse 9 says, Now there were men lying in wait, abiding with her in the chamber. And she said unto him, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he brake the withs as a thread of tow is broken when it toucheth the fire. So his strength was not known. Verse 12 says, Delilah therefore took new ropes and bound him therewith and said unto him, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And there were liars in wait abiding in the chamber, and he brake them from off his arms like a thread. Verse 14, And she fastened it with the pin and said unto him, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awaked out of his sleep and went away with the pin of the beam and with the web. The New Living Translation says there that he yanked his hair away from the loom and the fabric. And now jumping down finally to verse 20, it says, And she said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. And he was not that the Lord was departed from him. Luke chapter 18, verse 1 through 8, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. It says, One day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. Verse 2 says, There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, Give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. Don't you love the New Living Translation sometimes? This woman's driving me plain insane. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Verse 6 says, Then the Lord said, Learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he, this mean old crunchy judge, rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him, Day and night will he keep putting them off. I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? For the next few minutes, I'd like to speak on the topic, uh, the risks and rewards of repetition. Risk and reward of repetition. Jesus, we thank you for your love and your mercy. God, I pray that you would help me to be uh, clear in my thought. God, I pray that what you laid on my heart, Lord, I'd be able to clearly communicate to these good people that have gathered here today. God, we thank you that we have this opportunity to gather as your body, Lord. I pray that you prepare our hearts even now, God, as the word goes forth. We trust in your word. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Risk and rewards of repetition. The morning of January 28th, 1986 was unseasonably cold. The previous night, the temperature had dropped to 18 degrees 
and by 6 in the morning had only risen to 22 degrees. You all are thinking, well, January 28, man, that's, that's a heat wave. But listen on. Despite the cold temperatures, thousands had come from all over the country to Cape Canaveral, Florida. So it was, it was cold in Cape Canaveral, Florida. To watch the amazing feat of launching the 178,000-pound spacecraft into orbit. That morning, a combination of the cold temperatures and some rain had created a coating of ice on the launch tower. Because of the ice, the launch was delayed from its 9.38 a.m. launch time and was finally cleared to launch later that day at 11.38 a.m. when the temperature was a balmy 36 degrees, allowing for the ice to melt off the shuttle and the launch tower. The spectators had traded their normal Florida garb of polos and flip-flops for parkas and stocking caps as they waited anxiously a safe distance away for what would be history in the making. This would be the 10th flight of this particular spacecraft, a name many of us probably know, Challenger, the 10th flight since it was first launched three short years ago in 1983. This was a remarkable mission for a number of reasons, one of which it was the first NASA shuttle on which a civilian would be one of the members of the crew. The civilian was a a teacher named Krista McAuliffe. She was 37 years old. She taught social studies in Concord, New Hampshire. There was 11,000 applicants that applied to go up on the spacecraft that day, 11,000, and she was selected from amidst that 11,000 for the NASA Teacher in Space project. Once in space, she would be doing some experiments and even a couple of live uh, lessons to students all around the country. For the morning of the launch, NASA had organized for the event to be watched live by students all over the country. And among the many spectators that would be there live at the, uh, at the VIP section that was roughly three miles away from the launch pad were students from her school as well as her parents. Over the loudspeakers in the VIP section were the many dignitaries, family, and friends of the astronauts on board the shuttle watched with, with anticipation as the countdown continued you could hear the monotone voice of the controller who was giving the countdown. From a distance, they could see the space shuttle as the countdown neared closer and closer to zero. Smoke and fire billowed out the back of the shuttle and then became more intense as the countdown reached zero and the rocket slowly began lifting off the platform. The voice over the loudspeaker that had finished the countdown, then switched to someone else giving a live play-by-play from the control room at NASA. The shuttle quickly picked up speed as it rose higher and higher, defying gravity. Soon all that was visible from the ground was a thick smoke trail left by the rocket boosters. 73 seconds after liftoff, as the crowd tilted their head back, shielding their eyes with their hands, watching the shuttle rise higher and higher into the clear blue sky, there was a large explosion. What had just been a single billowing smoke trail became a large ball 
of smoke and fire, off which fell many smaller tails, like a firework on the 4th of July. The crowd watching was confused. The voice over the loudspeaker went silent for a full 30 seconds. When the voice came back over the speaker, his words were ominous, and I quote, Flight controllers are looking very carefully at the situation. Obviously, a major malfunction, end quote. There was another 40 seconds of complete silence. The voice came back over the intercom and said, quote, We have a report from the flight dynamics officer that the vehicle has exploded. Flight director confirms that. We are looking at checking with recovery forces to see what can be done at this point. Contingency procedures are in effect. The crowd who was just a few the crowd who just a few short seconds before had been giving high fives and cheers as the launch started now began to somberly and slowly descend from the bleachers where they had been watching. Sobs and wails began to be heard as the realization of what had just happened settled onto the stunned crowd. Seven Americans had just been killed in a horrific explosion on what was to be a day of promise and discovery. Ronald Reagan was scheduled to meet before a joint session of Congress later that evening for a State of the Union address. That was rescheduled. Instead, the president addressed the nation about the tragic accident. However, the real scope of the tragedy was about to be discovered. This was a preventable accident. The shuttle should have never launched that day. Behind the scenes, out of the eye of the public, the night before the tragedy, an emergency teleconference had been called by the builder of the booster rockets, a company called Morton Thiokol. Engineers had been closely monitoring data from previous launches and identified an issue with O-rings in the boosters. They saw that the O-rings that sealed sealed the booster joints weren't behaving according to design. On several flights, especially those at colder temperatures, rocket propellant had blown by the primary O-ring, and one engineer had even warned his superiors six months prior to the launch that if this issue was unaddressed, the result could be a catastrophe of the highest order, quote, a catastrophe of the highest order, the loss of human life, end quote. The engineers from Morton Thiokol urged NASA to postpone the launch until the temperature was greater than 53 degrees. However, the voices of the concerned engineers were not heeded. After all, the issue with the O-rings was not new. There had been nine other successful launches with no serious malfunction, and this particular launch had already been scheduled, rescheduled a few times. Because earlier cold-weather flights with O-ring problems didn't result in disaster, this damage was gradually accepted as normal. Diane Vaughn, who's a sociologist and professor at Columbia University, carefully studied the events that led up to the disaster. She wrote a book in which she coined the phrase, the normalization of deviance. She stated that this was when something that was clearly unsafe comes to be seen as normal if it doesn't immediately cause a catastrophe. In other words, what is not okay slowly becomes okay. I heard this story. I don't even know how. 
Um, maybe it was back in January on the the uh, the anniversary. I don't know, but I'd never really looked into the um, into the background of what was a challenge or disaster. But what a uh, what a tragedy! A hundred percent preventable tragedy. I mean, everybody understands that sp- space flight has an element of risk to it, but this was something a known issue that uh, had become an acceptable risk. And people didn't really want to be bothered to fix the issue because there was a schedule to keep. And so seven lives are lost. Um, thousands of years prior to the Challenger disaster, Samson had become accustomed to normalizing deviance. Uh, in our opening text, we read about his interaction between himself and a seductress that had been commissioned by the enemy to destroy Samson. You know, it's from, from our vantage point, we can look, look back at the, uh, at the situation in hindsight and just, I mean, that's just a perplexing story. Like, Samson, uh, you know, what were you thinking? Uh, can't, can't you see what's going on here? But the, the, he, just, he just did not see it. He had trained himself uh, to move the bar of acceptable risk, just moved it a little further and a little further. Um, in Judges, we, th- we see that there was an angelic visitation to uh, his Samson's parents prior to his birth. Uh, so his dad, Manoah, and his barren wife telling of their soon-to-be son, that was going to be Samson, and of his divine appointment to be a deliverer to the Israelites from the Philistines. Um, so Samson had a remarkable, he wasn't even supposed to be, his mother was barren. Something that's, I mean, just a complete, complete side note, but there's, there's something, there seems to be something unique. God seems to have a soft spot for, for barrenness. If you look, I mean, uh, some of the earliest matriarchs of the Bible, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, all, all had periods of barrenness. Um, then you can get into Hannah, and there's a bunch more in the Old Testament. You get in the New Testament, you look at Elizabeth. But barrenness, and God worked in that barrenness and performed miracles in that. I'm thankful for that. So just because something looks bleak and hopeless, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan, and God can't bring something out of nothing. But this baby, Samson, was born into that barren situation. He had a special call. Uh, he had a vow that he was he was to keep. And... Uh, I mean, many of you know the story, Samson. It's probably one of the, the most popular, if that's the right word, stories in the entire Bible. But he had, to, he had to keep his hair uncut, among other things. But as you read the exploits of Samson, it becomes apparent that, that he had no qualms about pushing the, uh, pushing the envelope and compromising his vow. So by the time he finally gets to his encounter with Delilah, it's just more of the same. I mean, he's already... Uh, He's already interacted with the carcass of a dead animal. He's already had, uh, which was against a Nazarite vow. He's already, um, you know, married a Philistine woman once. Uh, he uh, was was trapped in the city one time, was sleeping with a harlot. Um, you know, and God moved on him, and he ripped the gates off a city. And, uh, you know, time after time, God was merciful on Samson and moved in spite of Samson's mistakes. And so Samson became seduced into thinking that somehow it was going to be okay. It was going to be okay. Just a little bit, a little. But Samson's miscalculation resulted in him losing uh, both his vision and his freedom. 
So the story of Samson, I mean, it really should give us pause that the, uh, I think as a, as Christians collectively and as individuals that, you know, we just need to use the Bible as our compass and not society, not what's around us to, as, as, as just a point of reference, because it can be so easy. I mean, Samson's a classic tale of someone who allowed his, his vision and his, um, kind of his, his benchmark to be just so skewed because of what, what he had gotten by with before. And it must be fine. It must be okay. And rationalize himself into, you know, losing his sight. And I mean, we know Samson by the mercy of God, he made it to Hebrews chapter 11. Um, you know, he saw right at the end, he saw a, a huge victory, but it, the, that victory resulted in his, his death. And it could have been such a different story. We have no we don't know about Samson's kids. If he even had any kids, he really didn't pass on any kind of legacy, anything that we know of. So Samson was, though he had some victories, his, his overall story is, is really quite sad. But Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 through 9 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. You know, Samson made some repeated mistakes, uh, and it ended up in his disaster. But there are some things that we should repeat even when there is no immediate results. In uh, Luke chapter 18, Jesus said that men, we read that when we started here, that men should always pray and not faint. He gives a parable of the woman that was a widow, and she went to the unjust judge. And uh, for whatever reason, there was something that she needed. There was something that, uh, there was some injustice that had been inflicted upon her. And, uh, you know, maybe she was, well, she was a widow, so more than likely she did not have the resources to maybe hire a high-powered attorney um, she didn't have the uh, the connections in the town, so the judge just felt really he didn't need to take the time to to listen to this lady's petition. But the Bible says that she was just just did not give up. She went to him day after day after day until finally the judge just couldn't take it anymore. Just man, lady, just leave me alone. She said, "Well, I'll leave you alone. You just gotta you gotta fix my problem here." And so finally, uh, finally, uh, Jesus, or Jesus said that the judge said, all right, you know, here, here you go. So the woman just repeatedly, repeatedly uh, just went after the same thing. She knew it was right. She knew what she needed. She knew what, what, what she had coming to her. And she went after it again and again until finally the unjust judge answered her request. And, and Jesus says, how much more does God want to answer the repeated requests of his people. In Luke chapter 1, we see uh, an elderly couple in Zach, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Um, the Bible says that they are both righteous, but we know that they're, they're old. And as I mentioned earlier, that uh, Elizabeth was barren. Uh, so for years and years, no doubt they prayed that, that God would um, you know, provide them a, a baby, provide them a child, and there, there was no child. Um, for years and years, and and 
you know, maybe the, uh, maybe the prayer became a little less frequent as all of a sudden Elizabeth, you know, crawls into her 40s and maybe late 40s and maybe even a little less frequent, but maybe in the back of both of their minds, they're remembering, well, I re- we remember Abraham and remember Sarah, you know, and they, you know, if God can do it for them. He can do it for us. But, you know, more than likely, the frequency of the prayer probably waned off a little bit. But somewhere back in the, uh, where the vials of prayer are kept up in heaven, there was stored up a vial of prayer of, of uh, um, Elizabeth and Zacharias and and there was them praying for this baby. So when the time came, there showed up uh, in front of Zacharias and an angel and said, Hey, your prayers have been answered. All these years later, all this time later, your prayers have been answered. That repetition, that time and time again of praying and praying and seeming, seeing like there's, there's nothing going to come. There's nothing going to come of fruition. You know, here they are approaching probably death's door. And all of a sudden... Uh, just like Abraham and Sarah, they had a, a baby, John, who became John the Baptist. Um, later in, in Luke chapter 2, we see another man, a guy named Simeon. Uh, he was, the Bible says he was just and devout, was praying and waiting for the Messiah. Uh, he had he'd been told by the Spirit that he would not die until he had, he had seen the Christ. And he hung on to that, maybe prayed that prayer, believing for that, uh, believing that, promise and um one day sure enough uh, in comes a a couple uh carrying this small baby and realizing there's something in his spirit that was quickened and he realized it was it was uh this was the messiah this baby jesus was god in flesh that he'd been promised that he would see before he died similar to that there was a, a widow named anna the bible says she departed not from the temple but served god with fastings and prayers day and night and one day, too, she came to the temple, as was her custom, just praying, doing what she always did. Maybe didn't see, you know, this is a time when there was silence. There just really wasn't a whole lot going on um, for, for hundreds of years. There had not been a, a real visitation of, of the Spirit, and God had not been talking to his people. But um, here she was, being diligent, being faithful, and all of a sudden, same thing. She encounters Jesus Christ, who was God manifest. In flesh, you know, as we see uh, backing up into the Old Testament, we th- we see Elijah. He's uh, he's on Mount Carmel praying. And three years previous, God had said, um, "Here's the deal, Elijah. It's not going to rain until uh, you pray, and then then I'm going to make it rain." Um, so God gave Elijah a word, and he, and he he hung on to that, and. There Elijah is praying on Mount Carmel. He, got, he has his, he's just, you know, they've had the big uh, showdown with the, the prophets of Baal. If you um, go into 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 16, somewhere, somewhere in there. Um, but uh, Elijah is, uh, it gives a story of everything that went, led up to this moment uh, where he's praying for rain. There's been no rain for, for three years and Elijah prays, and he, and he sends his servant. He's praying, and he sends his servant. Go up and look, you know, see what the sky looks like. The servant goes, and it's like it's nothing, blue blue sky. So Elijah keeps praying, sends his servant again. We don't know exactly how many, like, the duration of time, but there was a significant, there was relatively significant. You can probably 
guess it. There was, it was relatively significant. But there was something in Elijah that just didn't stop. It's like, well, I guess maybe God wasn't really serious about that. Uh, I know he made me this promise. I know he said that when I prayed that, the, that it was going to rain. But, you know, maybe after five, ten, he's like, hey, you know what, servant? Let's just wrap this up. It's been a pretty good day. Uh, let's just call it call it quits for today. But no, he, he, he prayed again, sent the servant again the sixth time. And then of course, the seventh time, uh, we see that um, there was a cloud the size of a man's hand. And, and Elijah said, all right, we got we to gotta get out of here. It's, it's fixing to rain. He had a faith. He had faith to believe that just because that prayer, that initial prayer wasn't answered, uh, the first time or the second time or the third time did not mean that God was not faithful and that God did not hear his prayer. Jumping ahead to Acts chapter 10, we find Cornelius. The Bible says that he prayed to God always. And when the angel comes to him, he tells Cornelius, your consistent prayers have been heard and have gone up as a memorial. Here Cornelius was a guy with, without full truth, without a revelation. He was a, he was a Gentile, and because of his daily prayers, uh, Cornelius became the first Gentile to receive the gospel message from the guy with the keys of the kingdom, Peter himself. Let's all stand here this morning. Just a simple thought for you here today, but there's some things, the risks and rewards of repetition, sometimes uh, repeated mistakes that don't result in poor consequences can, can uh, maybe deceive us into thinking that maybe there is no issue or maybe we're okay. Uh, we got to watch out for those kinds of incidences. We need to make sure that we're checking our, our spirit and our heart allowing God to search us and making sure that our, um, we are measuring ourselves against a, a good weight. That would be the word of God. On the other hand, those prayers that have been prayed regularly and faithfully that don't seem to be answered, there is rest assured that there is a God in heaven that hears those prayers. And, uh, and at some point, those prayers will be answered. I was actually just talking to Bishop just a few minutes ago. Uh, remarking, and he was talking about his family, how, you know, that um, he's seen his brother pray through and now one of his dad's cousins pray through. And this is, you know, of, of years and years of seemingly nothing moving in a family. All of a sudden, these prayers that have been, been up in heaven are, are being poured out. And say, All right, now's, now's the time. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9 says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish and that all should come to repentance. I'm glad I serve a God that hears me. I'm glad I serve a God that uh, he's faithful and he knows. And um, if we are if we are faithful to him, those things that we're praying for, believing for, God will answer them in due time. 